Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We'll commence our reading there at verse 5. It's Matthew chapter 4 and starting at the fifth verse. And beloved, hear once again the inerrant, the infallible, the holy word of our God. But then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then turn with me, if you would, holding your place in Matthew 4. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And starting there at verse 9. Luke chapter 4 in the ninth verse. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Amen. Thus far the reading of his word. May the Lord bless us richly through it. Our text this morning, of course, is Christ's reply to Satan's second temptation. But I think it's fitting for us to step back from this text and to think about the Gospels as a whole. I think this is a practice we seldom engage in, but it's so very important. I know many of you are either in your homes or privately are reading through the Gospels. And so it's quite fitting that you and I ask, not just about a particular text, but about about the four Gospels themselves. What is it that the Spirit of God has given to us? What, What do we have here from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? As they wrote under the Spirit's inspiration, they've given us history. We know that. But perhaps has it lost its significance? I mean, friend, I want you to remember, just through the Old Testament for a moment, what the people of God do when God appears. The trembling, the fear that consumes Israel at the foot of Sinai. When God manifests his special presence through fire, thunder, and earthquake. Or take Manoah and his wife in the book of Judges. When God appears, how they tremble. And we could go on. We could go, of course, to that famous text in the prophecy of Isaiah. And there you have the prophet 
A a man sanctified by God, set apart for the office, crying out that that chief instrument of his ministry, his own tongue, is unclean to do God any service because he sees the Lord in a way he never did before. The prophet finds himself unworthy, and he finds himself in good company, doesn't he? He finds even, even the angelic host humbled, prostrate before the throne. And then John, the evangelist, tells us that the one whom Isaiah beheld is the subject of these four Gospels. God, the Son, incarnate, walking on the face of the earth. That's the history that you and I have when we come to a text like this. And how lightly then do we treat these readings? You watch as the incarnate Son of God, who is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, walks among men. And we read this as it is history. It should lead us to marvel then when we come to a text like the one before us this morning. We should marvel because in our text you remember how this Christ appears. He appears as one who's emaciated. A man who for 40 days has been hungered. Driven, as it were, into the, into the land of jackals and of vagabonds. And, and he's been driven there for the purpose of being tempted. And not only have we found him hunger, but we find this self-same Christ, the incarnate Son of God. So low in his state of humiliation that he is taken in the hands of the most wicked and most vile creature ever known. Taken by him that he might be tempted. You can imagine, beloved, of course no man was watching these events unfold, but you could imagine the angelic host, couldn't you, marveling. That the one whom they see here in such a weakened state is nothing less than he who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's right for us, just as it were, to reorient ourselves to what the Spirit of God has given us. A text that should drive us to marvel. Because Christ remained the glorious Christ that he always was even as we see him here in a state of humiliation. So what is, what is it that we have here? Well, beloved, in our text, directing you back to Matthew and to the seventh verse of chapter 4, we have Christ's response. We have Christ's reply to that subtle temptation that was levied at him just moments before. You remember that in that temptation, Satan would provoke Christ using the ordinances of the gospel that were around him, using the word of God that Satan had ready at hand, he would hurl those things at Christ, that arsenal at Christ, so as to make him presume. But then in our text this morning in verse 7, you have Christ's reply to it all. He says, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I suppose at verse 7 we could quickly read over those words that is written again, but we really shouldn't. And I said to you last time we were looking at Christ's first reply that, that it is quite significant that here the Lord Jesus Christ takes up the word of God as his weapon. 
And it is significant, isn't it? I want you to notice, first of all, that he says it is, it is written again. The sense is, in that same book, here Christ treats the word of God as a single unit. In that same book, it is written. Written as well. And friend, what you find here in this text then is Christ is using scripture, and, and from that the scriptures are so highly honored, aren't they? I, I mean, just focus for a moment on the fact that the one who wields the scriptures in this case is the limitless Son of God. That is, the one who is full of wisdom, power, glory, and honor. He is yet, nevertheless, chosen to make this, the word of God, his means to reply to, t- to Satan. Staggering, isn't it, when you think about it? Of all the means that the Son of God might have had at his disposal, he chooses to employ the word of God. He chooses to employ not just the word of God, but the inscripturated word that would have been well known to the church, deposited in the church for 4,000 years. It is his choice weapon. But not only that, friend, I want you to notice this, that not only does Christ prefer this text clearly, but this is Christ's reply to that false gloss that Satan put over Psalm 91. It's staggering, isn't it, that in this text you have Christ simply responding to a false use of Scripture with another Scripture. And so here, clearly, Christ is manifesting that the Scriptures are self-vindicating. They need nothing else. The Word of God, as it's inspired by the Spirit of God, is able to clear away all of the false ideas and notions that men and devils would, would mine out of that same Word. The word is self-sufficiently self-vindicating. And we could go on, couldn't we? But here you have the word of God being taken up by the hand of he who is the incarnate word. Surely, surely, beloved, this is a, this is a reminder to us of the, inest, of the inestimable worth of the pages that you have right in front of you. Christ would honor it would remind us, even here, that this is no small thing. But not only does he take up the scriptures, he takes up a particular command, and that is what you have here. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In the use of this text, Christ demonstrates his wisdom. He clearly sees that notwithstanding all of the subtlety that Satan had used in the verses preceding, notwithstanding all of the false uses of the means of grace, He sees very clearly through it all. He sees past the bait. He beholds the hook. And he clearly demonstrates that no, if I were to comply, I would be tempting God. Here you see the wisdom of Christ wonderfully set before us. But secondly, you also have this too. As Christ appropriates this command to himself, you have here a clear picture that God's precepts were Christ's principles. In other words, as you see him appropriate this command to himself, the idea is whatsoever God has commanded, so was Christ inclined. Here you have the majesty of Christ, even in the midst of such great, such such truly staggering tokens of humiliation manifesting that he is still 
He is still the holy, the harmless, the undefiled Lamb of God. Whose righteousness is unfathomable. Purity inestimable. But Christian, I would remind you as we make use of this text, and this is our theme for this morning, that Christ here is setting before us not only a clear picture of how he accomplished redemption, but he is also setting before us a clear picture of those who are to be conformed into his likeness. We read history, yes, we do. And we read here of the second Adam who could do what no other man could. As he is the Son of God incarnate, he himself could accomplish redemption. We read all of those things in this passage. But we also read of the one after whom, after whose likeness rather, we are to be conformed. And so, Christian, the the text before us teaches so very plainly that God's people, God's people are loath to tempt him. God's people are loath to tempt him. And I want us to consider that briefly this morning, by considering, first of all, how Christ has defined for us what the tempting of God really is, and also how Christ has demonstrated why this is so despised by God's people. And so I want us to take, first of all, the definition that's supplied. The temptation of God here is described for us, really, through a text. But here it's given to us, thou simply, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The word tempt there could be translated test as well, or try. And as you work yourself through the scriptures, you'll notice that there are many occasions where the word of God uses this idea, the tempting or the testing of God. And it, and it might surprise you to find that sometimes those words are actually used positively. Occasionally you'll find that even God commands it, like you do in the prophet Malachi. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me. It's the same idea. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall be room enough to receive it. In other words, God says, put me to the test. Do what I have commanded you to do and see if I will bless as I have promised to do so. And so there's a positive way. Even a way that is commanded for us to test God. But of course, our text is the negative. Our text is the prohibitive. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Here Christ is quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, there's something of a qualification, something of an addition that's added to that phrase. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Now friend, as you look at that text, I want you to notice first of all, that here clearly there's no contradiction between the prophet Malachi and what Moses gives to us in Deuteronomy 6. The qualification, as ye have tempted him in Massa, is crucial. And friend, as we look at this text, it's important for me to remind you that when Christ uses the scriptures, he always uses it appropriately. Always uses it according to the sense it was intended. And so it's right for us to look at Deuteronomy 6 just for a moment to understand what it is that here Christ responds to Satan with. In other words, why is it that this kind of temptation is sinful and so prohibited? Well, friend, as you look back to Exodus 17, what we read, you read of the tempting of God at Massa, that which is mentioned in Deuteronomy 6. 
In Exodus 17, you remember the context. God has miraculously pulled them with his own right arm out of Egypt. He's taken them even through the Red Sea. In Exodus 16, he's even sent heaven, from heaven on high, he has sent bread to those who are hungry. But you remember in Exodus 17, the people of Israel murmur. They murmur because there is no water. You remember how the text reads. The people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is it that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And then as we closed at verse 7, you remember how the Lord God himself judged the whole scene. They tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? If we hold those things together, that gives us a better picture of what the temptation of God was at Massa. And so, of course, a clear understanding of why Christ appropriates this text uh, this morning. You see, in Massa, the children of Israel, notwithstanding so many tokens of God's favor, notwithstanding all of, the, all of those symbols of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his power, notwithstanding all of the promises that they had been given, they still came to the point where they asked the question, is God here or not? Is God here or not? Perhaps things were better in Egypt. And so they doubted. They doubted the promises of God's word. They clearly flew in the face of all of those tokens of his faithfulness, his goodness, and his power, thinking that they must take all things into their own hands because they could not entrust themselves to God. And here the Lord says very pointedly, that is a tempting of God. It's quite fitting then that Christ would employ this text, isn't it? You see, Satan would have Christ in the first temptation despair of any help from his father. You remember just briefly how that first temptation ran. You have been brought to this wilderness place without food. You've been brought here, driven here by your father. Certainly because you've been here for 40 days, it's clear you need to take things into your own hands. You can't entrust yourself really to the goodness of God. Well, the second temptation that Christ responds to here is very much similar. Surely, surely after 40 days, after the pangs of hunger that you're faced with, after all of that desolate and wilderness time that you've spent, surely you need now some kind of confirmation that what God said in Jordan was actually true, that you are the well-pleasing Son of the Father. So challenge. Put, put God to the test, because surely His Word and the tokens of His goodness to you are insufficient. And Christ says clearly, To do so would be like the Israelites at Massa, to tempt the Lord his God. Beloved, I want you to notice in this case then, it is unbelief. Unbelief that is principally in view. Unbelief in this text, both with regard to Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 6, and in this case as well, it is unbelief that is targeted as a tempting of God. And friend, I want you to notice that in the scriptures, all manner of sin is called a tempting of God. It's not just unbelief. For example, Israel tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened unto my voice, says God. 
In other words, every sin is a temptation of God. But, but our text focuses our attention primarily on unbelief. And there are two ways that unbelief is a tempting of God. There's a way that, if you like, is accidental or, or more, more an effect than itself being a cause. What do I mean by that? Well, friend, I want you to notice that as you look at sinners, as the scriptures hold out to us kind of a cross-section of their hearts, unbelief lies at the root. Just to give you a few examples, take Psalm 10. The sinner is emboldened by this. He says, He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Note how the psalmist traces this man's violence, this man's hatred for God, back to his unbelief. He says, because this man is so persuaded that God is not on the throne, that God does not see, the man is emboldened in his sin. You see, friend, you and I, when we do, when we do sin, I think even a tertiary kind of of reflection, the surface level analysis would tell us that that lies behind our sin as well. We put out of mind that there is an omniscient God. We put out of mind that there is a God in heaven who is displeased with all wickedness. Unbelief too lies at the root. A second way we can think of this too is, is just what you have in Psalm, Psalm 11. The wicked are walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Sorry, First Peter, rather. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter there is describing those who are apostates, who have turned to become persecutors of the church. And, and he says they've done so because of a principle of unbelief. They also have forgotten that the Lord God, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. But there's another way that we can think of sin really, really drawing its force from unbelief. And that's what you have in, in Isaiah 5. There the prophet is dealing with a people who have heard time and again that, that God is a just God and God will reprove Israel for sin. And, and so this is their response to it all. They draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope and say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Their unbelief makes them daring. They hear of the judgment of God and so they make a mockery of it. And so the prophet says they draw iniquity like one would pull a cart. Unbelief, says the prophet, lies at the root of this as well. But more to the point, more to the point of our text this morning is not the accidental sense in which unbelief is a tempting of God and, and really the bottom of sin, but its formal aspect is a tempting of God. In other words, unbelief properly considered is itself a tempting of God. You see, friend, you see this in the scriptures through so many examples. Take the Pharisees just for a moment. When Christ is confronted with the Pharisees who, who would not believe what the scriptures said about the Messiah, they would not join what the scriptures said with what they were seeing in Christ. The Lord says they came to Christ tempting him, asking him for a sign. Note how the gospel writer, writing under inspiration of God's spirit, puts that. 
Their unbelief was a tempting of God. As it were requiring something more of God to demonstrate the veracity of his word. We can go a step further. Take, for example, what you have given to us in Psalm 78. When the children of Israel responded to the Lord, the psalmist tells us they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Note how the psalmist puts, in summary, Israel's experience in the wilderness. Because they doubted God's power, His promises, his per- and even His prerogative. He says, they limited the Holy One of Israel and therefore they tempted God. Beloved, unbelief in the Scriptures is set before us clearly and time and time again as a tempting of the Most High. We'll find out more in just a few moments' time about these themes. But I want you to notice this. What lies at the root of this kind of temptation is the idea that the Scriptures are insufficient. What God has given us is insufficient to show the truth of God's promises. That's how unbelief is a tempting of God, beloved. When you and I are doubting, we are calling into question the veracity of God's word and so God himself. As though his bare word were not enough. You know, in our world, if an employer suspects an employee of being being dishonorable, the employee may have a number of tests. Tests of his own making, perhaps leaving money out of the cash register just to see, just to see if the employee is trustworthy. Beloved, you and I in our unbelief are playing that with God. That was how Israel dealt with God at Massa, as though he were untrust, as though he were not worthy of trust himself, as though her, his word was insufficient. That's what Satan would have Christ do. His word certainly is insufficient. You must now presume and put it to the test, even in a way that contradicts the law of God. And friend, I want to say this to you clearly. Clearly, if unbelief is a tempting of God in this way, then every time a sinner hears the gospel and does not comply, they are tempting God. They are tempting God, and in an aggravated way. You see, beloved, he comes in the overtures of the gospel. He comes saying, genuinely, entrust yourself. Lay all of your trust upon me. Take yourself away from those broken cisterns that can afford you no comfort. Leave behind all of those things that will do you no good and entrust yourself to me. And the sinner holds himself at arm's length for whatever reason. And he says, I won't. And even those ones who hear the gospel and whose reason is, well, it's seemingly humble, but but it's testing God nonetheless. Those sinners who hold themselves at arm's length wondering, is the call for me? Wondering, is he even calling me as a tempting of God? It's to call into question the the very fact that God is trustworthy from his bare word. But secondly and finally, beloved, we have not only here a clear picture of of what tempting the Lord is in this case, but we have something more. We have a clear picture of the disposition of Christ. 
I want you to notice, again, as you're looking at this text, here the, the text does not read, thou shalt not tempt God. There's something of an elaboration, something, if you like, of a qualification. And, and, and it really is there to, to drive us to think more clearly and to think more earnestly about these things. Though he could have, though he could have said the same thing in, in, in shorter words, fewer words. He doesn't. No, it is to tempt the Lord in this case is to tempt the Lord. That is Jehovah. The one who says to Moses, I am. That is the one who is self-sufficient. The say God who has nothing given to him that he does not already possess. The one who requires nothing from any creature. The one who is in of himself, immortal, eternal, the only wise God. You are tempting that God in Massa, says the Lord to the people of Israel. The one who is true. The one in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The one who is God and not man that he, and that he should not lie. And beloved, more than that, in this case, you have also a clear picture that to tempt this one is to tempt he who has clearly left witness that he is true and that he is good. Paul can turn to pagans and say thus, he says, He left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. When you tempt God in this way with your unbelief, you are tempting the God who is say, that is self-sufficient, the God who requires nothing for his own happiness and power. You are tempting the one who is true, in whom there is no variableness of turning, no shadow of turning, no lying. You're tempting the one who has clearly demonstrated his faithfulness time and again, and even this morning. But then he goes a step further. You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Oh, it's an irrational thing, isn't it? Whenever a people have claimed the Lord for themselves, and yet they will not trust him. For members of the visible church to say that we take ourselves to him, and yet we don't really give ourselves to his word. But even a step further, friend, you'll have here too that it's quite reasonable, isn't it? That if these ones have called the Lord their God, they would be loath to offend the one who out of an act of free mercy, out of an act of free and sufficient grace, has claimed them as his people. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord, thy God. But I want you to notice something. And, and as you look at this text, it doesn't, it doesn't strike us at first brush, but, but if you look at this text, Matthew 4, 7, in relation to, well, in comparison rather to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, where this text originally is found, you'll notice, you'll notice there's a change of language. In Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's in the plural. In other words, the Lord says to the children of Israel, Israel, you, that is you plural, shall not tempt the Lord your God. That is the God of Israel. But Christ takes that text and personalizes it, brings it into the first person. 
thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Singular. And that's a staggering use of the scriptures, isn't it? You see what the Lord is saying so very clearly here is that he applies that general precept that belonged to all of Israel, that they do not tempt the Lord, and he says it is for me. I, I am not to tempt the Lord. And then, beloved, as you look at this, he also must apply the incentive as well. That the Lord is his God. In other words, Christian, what you have in this text is Christ internalizing both the precept and the promise. And friend, for our own instruction, what does that say to us? Well, that says to us that God's people are to make conscience of offending him as their God. It's not just that they don't offend God, but but in this text we're clearly taught that God's people make conscience, that is, they internalize this precept so as to loathe offending him as their God. And so, friend, I want you to consider just briefly what the internalizing of the precept means. What it means to take this command as though it were given to you and to you only singularly. Well, friend, what you have here is that first of all, every single person who makes a public profession of faith, either in baptism or or in communicant membership, they are saying this, that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the covenant. That's truly what is vowed. And so it stands to reason, doesn't it, that, that those who have made such a vow, those who are in such a covenant, would be those who really themselves are careful not to offend the God they've taken. But friend, we can go a step further. As we see this in Christ, so we see it even in what we sang. The people of God then internalize these precepts. They make God's precepts theirs. I have long, says the, I have long, says the psalmist, after thy precepts. I have long, my heart is inclined to these things. Verse 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. That's the disposition of God's people. That they've taken the precepts of God and they've said these things in all things. He's, he is, as it were, putting them to the test, examining them carefully, meditating on them thoroughly. And he says, after careful meditation, after thinking about these things clearly and frequently, I have come to the conclusion that these things are altogether right. Beloved, that's the disposition of the godly. That's what it means to make God's precepts personal. But we can go even a step further. You see, beloved, in this text you have Christ, as it were, cutting out for a moment every other individual and saying as though it were spoken to him alone. Do you treat the commandments of God that way, Christian? I suppose we can keep God's precepts at an arm's length whenever we say these things belong only to the church. But do you realize that every command that belongs generally to the people of God, if you were the only person, they would be yours. It is as though God in his word is now speaking and standing by you and you only and saying this is your duty, your duty. 
Beloved, that's how God's people take hold of the law of God, his precepts, as though they were spoken, commanded to them personally and directly. But not only does Christ appropriate this command to himself individually, he also does the same with the promise. He says that the Lord is his God. And there's so much, beloved, and we don't have time, but there is so much that is in this use of the text that is so so crucial to understanding the life of faith. But just briefly, I want you to notice, friend, how, how, this, how this use of the text actually answers Satan's primary temptation, that is to doubt Christ's sonship. By appropriating the promise in this way, he, as it were, cuts the throat of Satan's temptation and says, I have no doubt. Though all these providences are used, employed by you to lead me to doubt that I am in fact the well-pleasing son, in fact he is still my God. He is mine. And so, friends, Satan's suggestions are cut off, silenced immediately. But secondly, I want you to notice this too. Friends, as you look at this text, you have Christ who has a faith that is unalloyed. Christ, who is content with the promise. The promise of God, notwithstanding hunger, temptation, and so forth, to hold forth God's love to him. Christ, beloved, just as he took the precept and made it his own, as it were, he takes the promise as though it were only made to him. Yes, in some extraordinary senses, those promises of his love were unique. But he takes a promise that was appropriated to generally the church of God. He makes it his own. Beloved, the godly are to do the same. Yes, the promises of God that are found in Christ, those things belong to the church generally considered. But in this text, we even have Christ's own example of taking even those words and applying them personally as though they were made only to you. Beloved, we don't read the promises of God that way, do we? Not really. But friend, I also want you to notice this. That just as that ought to have been an incentive, that this is the Lord, their God, that that ought to be an incentive to not tempt the Lord for Israel, it was certainly an incentive for God, for God the Son not to tempt his Father. Because of Christ's love, his unfathomable, his deep love for his Father, how could he tempt him with unbelief? He was loath to tempt the one whom he called his God. Friend, I want you to notice, and we so often lose sight of this, but the gospel accounts are so clearly driving us to think about the heart of Christ, and especially his heart toward his Father. There's a text in John's gospel at the very end, well, toward the end, rather, of the the discourse in the upper room, that we could so lightly read over, but we shouldn't. It's the text that reads thus. He says, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. 
You see what Christ is saying there? He's saying that, that notwithstanding all that awaits Him in Gethsemane and later at Calvary, notwithstanding all of the affliction and the pains of the second death that will ensue, notwithstanding all of those pressures, notwithstanding every token of God's wrath that will fall upon me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go hence. You see a shadow of that in our text this morning. You see a shadow of that in that Christ is willing to be sent into the wilderness for 40 days, hungered and weakened, sent into the wilderness expressly to be tempted by the devil, to suffer, to hear all of the heresies, the blasphemies, the abuse of God's means of grace. He is subjected to all of these things in His humiliation. And beloved, what you find in this text then is a Christ who so earnestly loves His Father, who is always, always having a heart inclined to Him, that how could He then? How could He then, notwithstanding every affliction, tempt Him with unbelief? Oh, beloved, you have to hear the picture of, of a majestic Christ. In Jeremiah, the Rechabites were praised for their fidelity to their forebear. In Genesis, you have a picture of Isaac submitting to Abraham. But, beloved, never was there a son so conscientious of the will of his father as the one we find in our text this morning. And so as we close, Christian, how do we apply this text? First of all, as I said to you already, this is a picture of Christ's likeness. If we're reading the text any other way, if we're reading it purely as history, it will do us no good. We need to see here that this is the pattern that God's people must find in themselves if indeed they are called the people of God. And so there are three things we have to ask ourselves. First of all, The question is, of course, the use of Scripture. Those who are conformed after the likeness of Christ will make use of the Word of God. We see that in this text so clearly. They will make ample use of this Word. They are pleased to hold it as a self-vindicating Word. They treat it as an inestimable gift. Christ does, and so must his people. The second thing, friend, that you find here is that Christ clearly demonstrates that sin must be loathed more than discomfort. Sin must be loathed more than discomfort. And how do we see that? Well, just very briefly, friend, Satan would have Christ challenge the love of God as it were just to give him, as it were, a modicum, a small piece of comfort. And Christ refuses that, seeing the sin behind it. He's pleased to submit to God's way, to make use of those things that God has set before him. And even if that means that he is afflicted, touched with hunger, he's still pleased more, more to remain faithful to his Father than to engage in sin. Thirdly, friend, you have here a clear picture of a Christ who really takes hold of God as his. And so must all of God's people. It's not sufficient, as this text shows us, to know that God has chosen a people. It is not sufficient. It is not sufficient.
for people know, to know that there is a Savior of sinners. They must make the Lord their God through him. And so, friend, those are three marks. And we could go further, but those are three marks of what it means to be made Christ-like according to this text. They make ample use, revered use of the word of God. There are people who loathe sin more and more than suffering. And they are a people who say from the heart that they have made the Lord their God. And so, friend, this text does hold out several things to us as well with regard to comfort. To those who would ask the question, am I called to believe the gospel? Looking at the precept and knowing that the precept is primarily turning to unbelief. The answer to that question is so straightforward, isn't it? It would be tempting God for you not to believe. For those who wonder, do I have a warrant to take hold of Christ? This text reminds us that it is sin not to. Not only are you warmly invited, you are commanded. But secondly, friend, for those who have taken hold of Christ, you can ask the question, was Christ summoned to live upon promises under affliction? Was he summoned to take hold of the word of God and to entrust himself to it under so many tokens of affliction and suffering? Well, friend, if your forerunner, if your head was called to that life, then it would, it, would it not be ordinary for his people to have the same experience and command? So many Christians today think that the mountaintop is the Christian experience. That the highest religious affections are the normal experience of God's people. It wasn't so for our head. It wasn't for Christ. Beloved, so many hard providences accompanied him such that he was called a man of sorrows. He was called to live upon the promises of God's word. And so, beloved, it is the ordinary experience of God's people to do the same. But finally, friend, did he? Did he subject himself to such humiliation, to such affliction? If he did, then, friend, you have a sympathetic high priest who knows not only as his omniscient God, but as man in his humanity, he knows by experience what it is to be tempted and afflicted and to entrust himself to the Lord his God. And so finally, Christian, as we close, this is a text that should lead us to marvel at Christ. If we've, missed, if we've read this text any other way, we've read it wrongly. Here you have our second Adam standing precisely where the first Adam fell. Here you have Christ, notwithstanding all the subtlety of the devil, he stands firm. And notwithstanding all of the affliction and all of the weakness that, is, that he's encountering, he stands, friend. And so we see here a clear picture of the white-hot holiness that you find in Him. Of the blemishless righteousness that is in Him. The righteous fall seven times a day, but not our Christ. He stands, friend, and you and I should marvel. None have. None have stood as Christ stands in our text. Secondly, beloved, 
this text exhorts us to make God ours through Him. We can only appropriate the promise, the Lord thy God, only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even while we read the history of the Gospels, it's driving us to be able to say the same thing through Him. And beloved, it urges us to do as Christ has done. To appropriate every precept of God's Word as though it were directed to you personally and solely. Has He commanded the church to be faithful? Has He commanded the people of God to, in everything, mind His law, even if it means spurning the world and even if it means at the cost of their own life? Well, beloved, those commands were directed to the church generally and are to be appropriated by you and me as though they were spoken to us individually. They are yours. But secondly, friend, also, in that same vein, every promise by the people of God and for the people of God is to be appropriated by them. This requires prayer and fasting. This requires diligent use of the means. This requires great mortification of sin and constant, well-nigh constant approaches to the throne of grace. To be able to prayerfully lay hold of every promise as though it were made to you individually. Christ calls him his God and all that that means. So, beloved, you and I are called to do the same. In this text, we see how low Christ stooped that he might save us. How far he was willing to go in his humiliation to redeem the lost and dying people. And beloved, you're supposed to see in this text how far he stooped for you. How far he stooped for you both to save you and set before you an example. And so, Christian, leave this text marveling that here you have the incarnate Son of God walking on the earth, accomplishing redemption for you as your head. May we be a people conformed then into his likeness. Amen.